Just a few years back, the British broadcasting company did a report on the power of human beliefs. You've heard of the placebo effect where the human body can respond to treatment it's not actually receiving. You take the little sugar pill that actually has no medicine in it, but yet your body responds as though it's receiving exactly what it needs. There's an evil twin to the placebo effect, though, known as the nocebo effect. And with the nocebo effect, your body can respond to an ailment or malady with symptoms when it, in fact, does not even have the malady to begin with. It's the power of suggestion that can produce dizziness. It can produce vomiting. It can produce all kinds of aches and pains, and in most extreme cases, can even lead to death. Beliefs are powerful. As Christians, we hold certain beliefs to just be the core of our foundation of our faith. We have beliefs that the church has held across the centuries that distinguish us, that give us our sense of identity and even our greatest hope. Beliefs are really important. And this summer, we are starting a new series about the beliefs that Christians have held across the centuries of the church. And we're going to explore them week by week, week after week. We will look at core doctrinal areas, core areas of what we believe so that we can refine and hone our faith. But let's just clarify something right up front. Some of us in this room have been Christians longer than others of us in this room have even been alive. And some of us in this room have only been Christians for a short amount of time. If you've been a Christian for many years, maybe even decades, let me just say, you should not expect in this series to learn new things. In fact, if you do, that might actually be a sign of warning. You might want to run out the door if you're learning a lot of new ideas. But for others, hopefully this is something that can clarify what Christians believe. And if you believe for many years, hopefully this is something that can just encourage and refine your faith even more. The starting point for what we're going to do as we launch out into this series is to look at this book today, because this book contains the core beliefs that Christians hold to. This is the book that we look to to understand what it means to be a Christian and, and who God is and who we are as image bearers of him. There are a lot of different opinions about the Bible, though, aren't there? People hold a lot of different beliefs about this. To some, this is just a book of good moral teaching. It has some things that we can glean from it and apply to our lives maybe or find inspiration from. There's also some interesting historical events that we might read about. To others though, this book is so out of date that it's out of touch and it's just irrelevant. We would do better to actually read some of the more current authors, to read about people who are more in touch with our own contemporary situation and circumstances. There's really no relevance to the Bible. And yet to others, the Bible is dangerous. The Bible has been a weapon. The Bible has led to oppression of people. It's led to violence, and it's inspired all kinds of problems. The Bible is something to be avoided. I want to make the case this morning that as Christians, our belief is that the Bible is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it is a gift from God that greatly rewards those who treasure it. 
Let me say that again. The Bible is the word of God. And as the word of God, it is a gift from God that greatly rewards those who treasure it. Now, let me clarify something else here too. We have about 30 minutes this morning. There are a lot of great, honest questions about the Bible that I just simply will not have time to get to. I'm going to fly over things really quickly. And so if you have honest questions, just understand I may not be able to give you the kind of response that you're looking for to those questions. That would have to happen offline, offstage at a different time, but I would love to do that if you have questions. But let's jump in this morning to the Bible's claims about itself. That's our starting point. And to see that, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I would invite you to turn there. We are going to be flipping around a little bit from text to text, but we will mostly be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. So go ahead and turn there with me. And we read the words of Paul that are written to his protege, Timothy. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus ministering there. And Timothy is facing great pressure in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a pagan city full of doubts from the pagan environment around the church in Ephesus, but also full of false teaching within the church. So Timothy is feeling the pressure from both directions. And Paul wants to encourage Timothy in his faith, in his role as a minister of the gospel there. And he says this to Timothy. He says, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is saying to Timothy, continue on in the things that you have been taught and remember who taught you. If you look back to chapter one of 2 Timothy, you would see that Paul cites Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother as people who had invested deeply into his life and had built up and instructed Timothy in the faith. Paul also, though, could be included in that as well in Timothy's older years, that Paul had also invested deeply into Timothy's life. And Timothy is to remember specifically the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings most clearly point to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but not exclusively so. A lot of scholars think that Paul could easily have in mind some of what we today call the New Testament. Now, we're going to flip a couple pages. You actually don't even need to turn there. I'm going to have it on the screen. We're going to flip a couple pages, though, to, to 2 Peter, to the end of 2 Peter, and we're going to see a section that helps us see evidence for why Timothy may have more in his mind when Paul tells him to think about the sacred writings. So in 2 Peter, written about the same time, Peter is writing to a crowd of people about the, his br beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in these writings of Paul that are hard to understand. We can all say amen to that. Which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter is holding some of Paul's writings, which are familiar to him and which are familiar apparently to the people Peter is writing to, He's holding some of these writings of Paul as being at the same level as the sacred writings 
as the Hebrew Scriptures. It's by this time, some of what we today would call the New Testament was circulating around, was familiar to the early church, and was being considered Scripture already at this point. Okay, now back to 2 Timothy. So just keep that in your mind. when, When Paul is telling Timothy about the sacred writings, they could easily have in mind not only what we today call the Old Testament, but part of at least what we call the New today. And then there's this phrase in verse 16 where Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. This is a key phrase for what Christians believe about the Bible, that the Bible is the divinely given word of God. Now we might just look at that phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God and think of these golden tablets dropping up, dropping down out of the sky, that it's just breathed out somehow by God. But Christians believe that it's breathed out by God, spoken by God through human authors. Now, we're going to go back to 2 Peter, but stay there a little bit longer in chapter 1. And here's what Peter writes to his recipients of his own letter. They're facing their own challenges. They're facing the challenge of people who are accusing them of believing myths about Jesus. A particular myth that says that You believe that Jesus will one day return. You're making that up. There's no way that's true. That's just this prophetic word that somebody is just creating out of the air, out of their own ideas. And contrary to that, Peter says, no, no, no. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is breathed out from God And men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are two different expressions that give us our core belief about the Bible. That it is God's word communicated through human beings. And as you read the Bible, you understand that each letter, each writing has its own uniqueness to it. So even though we might wonder, we might have questions, what does that mean? What was that like to be carried along by the Holy Spirit? we can see that this is not the suppression of the writer's personalities or writing styles or vocabularies, but actually God is employing the unique personalities, the unique vocabularies, the unique experiences and writing styles of each of these authors to communicate exactly what he wanted to reveal. The Bible is the divinely spoken word of God expressed through human authors. It is God's truth revealed to us. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that's true, does it? It doesn't tell us about nuclear physics. The Bible does not tell me how to make a great latte. But the Bible is sufficient in terms of everything I need to know about the gospel for salvation. Okay, back to 2 Timothy. We see that. When Paul tells Timothy that he should, he's been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They're able to make him wise, and he does not need other revelation or other kind of writings or outside sources in order to understand the gospel. But everything about the gospel that we need to know is contained in the pages of these words, of this scripture. When we read the Bible, we see that We learn about God as the creator and the sustainer of all things. We learn about how he created humanity in his image. We learn about humanity's rebellion against God. 
that we would become the ones who would decide what is good and what is evil. We would do right in our own eyes. And because of that, our relationship with God is broken as we have violated God's relationship. And because of that, God has launched his plan to restore us to him, to reconcile us back to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that one day, Jesus will return as the reigning and ruling king of kings to judge the earth and to reign. We learn about all of that in scripture. So we can say that scripture is the divinely given word of God expressed through human authors, and it is the sufficient word of God for salvation. It's all we need to know. But in addition to that, we also see scripture as helping us understand all of life and reality. There are a lot of different places we could turn to in Scripture to be able to see examples of this, but let's just say, stay in 2 Timothy 3. This is not up on the screen, but if you just looked at 2 Timothy 3, you would read Paul saying this to Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Then skipping ahead, Paul also says, he talks about the persecutions, the sufferings he has faced, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. As I read those words from Paul, I can, I can think about our own day and age and say, ah, finally, a perspective that helps me make sense of reality, a perspective that helps me make sense of what I experience in my daily life. The Bible is not just something we look at to read, but the Bible is even something that we look through like a lens in order to understand reality around us. It's the divinely given word of God expressed through human authors. It's sufficient for salvation. It's all we need for salvation. And it is like a lens that helps me understand reality and the world that I'm a part of. All of that to say that the, we believe the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. That's not a really popular claim these days, to think that the Bible would have this kind of absolute truth expressed through it. We live in a world of relative truth, where we like to say that all roads lead to the same destination. But the Bible makes exclusive claims about itself. The Bible makes exclusive claims about God, about the human predicament, and about the resolution to our greatest problem, which is sin. The Bible is God's word spoken through human authors. But then we might wonder, how can we trust that the Bible that we have today is actually that? That this is, in fact, the word of God? The first thing that we say about the trustworthiness of Scripture is that it's given without error because it's given by a perfect God. That as God spoke to humans, as he spoke through humans, that he did not speak with any kind of an error, any kind of falsehood. 
We see this at multiple places in scripture. The claim that God is absolutely truthful. Numbers 23, 19 is one place. And this is from the lips of a pagan sorcerer, Balaam. But he says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Psalm 119, we read this. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for his followers. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It's just logical sense that if the God of the universe revealed himself to humanity, that he would do so in a way that is without error, that is perfect. Again, the Bible does not tell us all things about all of reality or about every realm of human knowledge. But we know that what is revealed in Scripture is revealed without any error in it. But we talk about this word, inerrancy, that it's without error in the original writings. That as these human authors received the Holy Spirit's word, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that it was without any kind of error that was expressed in those original documents without any error. So that might raise the question, well then, we don't have the original document here that I'm reading this morning. So what confidence do we have that what we have in our hands this morning is actually still a faithful representation of what was originally given? If you compared the Bible to all kinds of other ancient documents, you would see there's this common issue that they all have. And that's the fact that in the day before the printing press, you had handwritten copies of ancient documents that had to in turn be hand copied and then disseminated out to other people. There's no way to just send an email across the internet and say, hey, here's God's word. Can you imagine being in the position of a copyist, of somebody who's a scribe and having one document on your left and having another document on your right and having to say, okay, I need you to copy this word for word, letter for letter, line for line, front, back, page after page, and you need to do it without any errors. Like how many of us just read a book and we start to daydream and forget what we read and we end up reading the same paragraph three different times? Imagine how easy it is to skip over a word or to skip a line or to write the same word twice. There's all kinds of possible ways we might make a mistake. So this is a problem for any ancient document. So what really smart people do is they take all of the copies of ancient documents and they compare them with each other to decide what the original document actually said. And when you compare the writings of, for example, Homer, we have almost a thousand different copies of the Odyssey and the Iliad. And if you look at all of those different copies, you can see that they are really helpful. They're like the gold standard of the ancient world in terms of different copies of documents that we might have. But the earliest ones of those copies are actually 400 years after Homer would have written. So it's a long time down the road. If you look at other ancient Roman historians, and don't get distracted by the chart, please. Uh, just listen to what I'm saying, because it might make more sense. But if you look at other ancient Roman documents, we have a handful of copies of them, and they're all written centuries after, or the copies that we have, they were all centuries after the originals would have been written. That's the most important thing to see. 
But when you look at the New Testament, it is without any kind of peer. Just in the Greek alone, there are over 5,700 Greek New Testament copies that we have today. And the, the distance between the earliest copies and when the originals would have been written is a matter of decades, not a matter of centuries. 5,700 Greek New Testament copies is only for the Greek. If you look at Latin, there's another 10,000 copies. If you look at other ancient languages, there's almost another 10,000, nine or 10,000 copies. The early church fathers quoted the New Testament so often that we can reconstruct the New Testament just based off of their writings alone. Here's the bottom line if your head is spinning. This is New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg and other New Testament scholars say the same thing. More than 99% of the original Greek New Testament can be reconstructed beyond any reasonable doubt. The story of the Old Testament is slightly different, but the outcome is the same. The point is that when we hold our Bibles in our hands today, we can be confident that what we have today is a faithful representation of what was originally written. We say that the Bible is written without error in the original manuscripts, but we can be confident that what we have today faithfully represents what was originally given. It's a source of confidence that we have. So it's written without error. It's transmitted faithfully across the centuries. But we should remember as well that our confidence also rides on the fact that when we look at the writings about the life of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we're talking about eyewitness testimony. We're not talking about the testimony of people who are several people down the line of, oh, I heard this about him. Oh, I heard that about him. This isn't the telephone game. This is, in fact, the eyewitness testimony, the firsthand accounts of people who were there who saw his life. In 2 Peter, he talks about this to help refute the dispute that he's facing, where people said that they've just made up the prophecy that Jesus will one day return. Peter says, no, 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 I, I was with Jesus. James and John were with me. We saw him transfigured in all of his kingly glory. We heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. We heard this, we saw this. This is not just something that's made up. If you look at the opening words of Luke's account and Luke's gospel, he also highlights the value of eyewitness testimony in everything that he wrote. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is not on the slide, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrected Jesus and how Jesus appeared to all of these people, including himself. But at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, many of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep, some had died. But it's as though Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. The New Testament is built on firsthand eyewitness testimony. So when we combine that with the fact that we have an inerrant original text that has been faithfully transmitted across the centuries and is built on eyewitness testimony, we can have great confidence that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God that has been faithfully preserved for us today. And here's the point where we can get into trouble. Because if the Bible is in fact the word of God, it demands a response. If the Bible is what we say it is, it requires us to respond in some way. 
One of the first problems we can get into is just simply not knowing the Bible. We just set it aside and say, it's the word of God, that's great. And just go on about our lives. Consulting influencers on social media, listening in and taking in all kinds of voices without ever being informed about what God's word actually says. I'm so thankful that we are all a part of a church that honors the word of God as the word of God. I'm thankful that Jenny and her crew of leaders in Calvary Kids is teaching kids about the Bible week in and week out. I'm thankful that Patrick and Jake and student ministries and their great leaders are teaching students about the Bible in middle school, in high school. That is an awesome thing. I'm grateful that for adults, we have so many ways we can get involved in learning the Bible with other people through life groups, through Sunday classes, that we can do it in men's and women's ministry. There is no reason we cannot be a part of a group here at Calvary that honors this as the word of God so we might grow in our knowledge of it and applying it to our lives. So the first mistake to avoid is just to, to merely not understand the Bible because we don't spend any time with it. But a second mistake we might make and so we might spend a lot of time reading the Bible, but just simply miss what the Bible is actually about. In John chapter 5, the Jewish, Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus because he's desecrating the Sabbath in their minds. He's calling God his father, making himself equal with God. And in Jesus' response to those leaders, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that and in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. The point of the Bible is not the Bible. The point of the Bible is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals Jesus to us. The Bible expresses the gospel to us. May we not be people who read the Bible and miss the point of the Bible, that it reveals Christ to us. So we may not read the Bible, we may misread the Bible, but maybe the biggest danger of all is that we would be selective in how we read the Bible. We might say, I love the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I love that. I'm not so big on the love your enemy part. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, sorry, that's just not me. I don't like you meddling with my money, telling me what to do with my money. I don't like you interfering with my marriage. We might take the Bible as the word of God, but only handle certain parts of it as the word of God. Tim Keller, who just died a couple weeks ago, sadly, he wrote this about this problem. He said, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God that can contradict you? You won't. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage. Will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? 
So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. If the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible has the authority of God over all of my life, over all of our lives. But it doesn't only have the authority of God. If it's the word of God, it also has the reward of God. We saw this in in 2 Timothy. We saw this in in John chapter 5, where Jesus said that the scriptures point to him, and if you come to him, that you have life. That life is part of the reward. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we saw what Paul said to the people there, that all scripture is read out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is part of the reward of scripture, that it equips us. It doesn't just affirm us. If we're just looking for affirmation from the Bible, we're looking for the wrong thing. Because God, the same God, who through his spirit breathed out the word of God through human authors, is the same God who wants to use scripture to transform our own lives as we read it. It's not about affirmation. It's about transformation. And as we yield ourselves to it, as we come underneath God's word, A supernatural thing can happen where God's spirit works in us. And it's part of this great reward of scripture. Another place we might turn to see this reward, not on the screen, but it's Psalm 19. Listen to the words that David uses to describe the value of God's word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. The Bible is the word of God. And as the word of God, it is a gift from God that greatly rewards those who treasure it. May we be that kind of people. I'd like to wrap up this first sermon in the series by reading from our statement of faith, excuse me, our statement of faith about the Bible. This is what expresses what Calvary holds to, what the Evangelical Free Church of America holds to. And as we read this together, let this just be an affirmation of what we say and what we believe to be true about God's word as followers of Jesus. Let's read this together. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, 
It is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of gathering around the table for communion. Scripture tells us about the word of God made flesh who made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. It tells us about the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And we see again from John chapter 5 that through Jesus we have life. And that is what we remember. That's what we acknowledge. That's what we celebrate. That's what we proclaim this morning. The, the death of Christ is what gives us life. Let's just take a moment to prepare our hearts for this. Let's take a moment to quiet our minds and to engage with the fact that Jesus is the one who laid down his life for us so that we can know him, so that we can follow him, so that we can have ultimate eternal life. So let's take a moment and then we'll take together.